pretty much any leader, if you ask long enough, you know, who's the one who got away? Who's the employee that you had on your team that, oh, when they left, it crushed your soul, it broke your heart, you, you struggled mightily. Every leader who's been in business for any appreciable amount of time has a name that immediately comes up. But then when we ask them, what could you have done differently to keep them? They have no idea. Welcome to The Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. PDW fans, we are excited to share our amazing guest with you today, our friend, Joey Coleman. To ensure you don't miss him or any of our top voices in the future of work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and also join our YouTube channel. We're thrilled to have the captivating Joey Coleman on the show. Organizations like Whirlpool, NASA, Volkswagen Australia, Principal Financial, and Zappos, when they need to boost their employee and customer engagement and their experience, they call on Joey Coleman. For over 20 years, Joey has helped organizations retain their best customers and employees, turning them into raving fans through his entertaining and actionable keynotes, workshops, and consulting projects. He is the Wall Street best-selling author of two books, Never Lose a Customer Again, and the brand new 2023 Never Lose an Employee Again, The Simple Path to Remarkable Retention. This topic couldn't be more relevant because it's been a rough road for the last few years on employee experience, engagement, culture, and retention. Now, what you may not know is that Joey and I have been friends for more than 15 years. We met in the early 2000s. We played a huge role in each other's weddings. We shared countless life experiences together. And what I've always admired about Joey is his huge heart, his ability to craft a beautiful story and the great lengths he will go to to create an unforgettable experience. Joey, welcome to the show. Oh, Nate, what a kind introduction. Thank you so much. So many things you could have said knowing each other for 15 years and you decided to go nice. I'm, I'm choked up a little bit over here. Alex, thanks as well for having me on the show. I got to tell you guys, I get the chance to do a number of podcasts and I feel very fortunate for that. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Awesome to have you, man. Just awesome. All right, well, let's dive in. So Joey, a big premise of your new book is that there's this massive gap of unmet needs and expectations between employers and employees, right? Employers expect employees to care passionately about their business as much as they do. Now, on the other side, employees expect their employers to care more about them personally as sensitive human beings and less as units of productivity. So how do we begin to narrow this gap and get both sides to recognize and react better to the unmet needs of the other? Well, Alex, I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that there's a problem. And sadly, I think there are a number of organizations and frankly, a number of employees who are still in this adversarial, disconnected environment of it's us against them. And that model, well, let me think about it, yeah, has never worked. Uh, and it certainly isn't working in 2023. So I think the first step is acknowledging that there's a disconnect between the two parties. Secondly, we need to look at the way we have structured the relationship. 
and how we are giving signals in the relationship about our degree of connection, our degree of support, our degree of involvement. What I think really became evident in the COVID pandemic is not that necessarily anything changed as much as things were exacerbated. Problems that already existed got worse. Situations that were already tenuous got pulled to the edges, if not broken. And what we're dealing with right now is kind of a post-traumatic syndrome, both from the employer and the employee perspective, that I think a lot of folks are walking around in this PTSD setup, not acknowledging that the landscape has changed, not acknowledging that they're carrying wounds from things that happened during COVID, physically, mentally, emotionally. And we've got a huge opportunity to start having conversations that I know you two have been trying to get people to have uh, with the podcast and in your personal and professional lives for years. But it's like the time has come to move those conversations to the forefront. 100%. So what I'm hearing from you in a lot of ways is that before we can actually get to the grievances on either side and come together, there needs to be a lot of healing conversations on both sides to really for everybody to feel a bit more more seen, known, and valued. Is that right? I, I, I would posit that if your people can't affirmatively answer, do you feel seen? Do you feel heard? Do you feel valued? If they can't answer yes to those three questions, on a regular basis, and I'm going to define regular basis as if you were to survey them multiple times within the same week, they could answer it. Now, I recognize in every single meeting, is everyone going to feel that their voice is heard? No, there's a practical reality that it's just not going to happen. But it needs to be enough of a consistent ethos and a consistent experience across your enterprise for you to have long-term engagement and retention. And I think having the conversations and sitting down from a place of curiosity first, as opposed to a place of criticism, is a great place to start. We talked a lot about that, Alex and I, and Alex actually brought it up as it's a relationship. You just said it's a relationship. And it's um, this interesting thing that you're also bringing up is things have changed so dramatically and there's so much, there are other disruptive forces in the water that we have to just acknowledge that there's trauma, there's a lot of change, and the context has changed. Yes. So we, we can't just race into some solution when we haven't even acknowledged it. it is, we're not even talking about what was before. This is a different thing. 100%. And I think the, as if all of that wasn't challenging enough, we're also living in an exponential era when we have linear biology. Yes. So let me unpack <laughs> that briefly, okay? Because yes. I think once you start to recognize this as an organization, as a leader, as a team member, the game changes completely because the lens in which you're viewing the world shifts in a way that it will never shift back. And that is biologically, over centuries, millennia, humans have evolved. And in as, as a general rule, I would posit that what happened during the pandemic is the greatest disruption to the world of work that we have ever seen. Not only because the scale of what happened, but because of the distribution of what happened globally. Never in the history of the world has one event affected every human being on the planet at the same time. Right. And the fact that pre-COVID, a significant swath of employers felt, well, we have to have them in the office to do work. And then when COVID comes along and people aren't legally allowed to be in the office in many jurisdictions, but the work keeps getting done. And in fact, most research shows the productivity and the efficiency went up. We've completely changed the rules of the game. Yeah, that's the way to say it. We've completely changed the rules of the game. And now it's time to have a different conversation. On that note, I really like the frame you said, do you feel seen? Do you feel heard? Do you feel valued? 
Well, the next question is these employee surveys have been kind of dated and tired. And, and one of the things you noticed is that the sample size wasn't always as big as it should be. In fact, some of them were pretty small. And you were able to find a huge sample size, 243,000 employee responses. And this is unique. But what did you find in that data that was so unique and valuable? If you ask most leaders, why are people leaving? They get really frustrated and they say, oh, well, you know, our competitors paying them more. They were able to get a better benefits package or more money. They're just, they're all about the money. And that is true for 9% of employees. 9% of employees leave for more money. I'm the kind of guy that, while I certainly think that's important, we need to pay attention to it. And don't get me wrong, you got to pay your people a competitive salary and you've got to think strategically about your benefits. But I'm super interested in the 91% of people that leave for reasons other than money. And what's crazy is the number one reason, the largest answer people gave for leaving, 23%, almost 3x. I know you were told there would be no math on the Disrupted Workforce podcast. Okay, (laughs) two and a half times, right? I rounded up to three, but two and a half times greater than the reason of people leaving for money is leaving because they didn't have a clear vision for their career path going forward within that organization. The typical employee has no idea what job is even going to be available to them, let alone they're going to be promoted into two years from now. And that is a huge problem when we ask people to think strategically, think long-term about their job, their work, what they do. If they don't have that vision into their future within the organization, they're going to look somewhere else to answer that question. And part of the issue, of course, is that these companies are trying to get their arms around this rate of change that you're talking about, that we're always talking about, that the way that they conduct their business, that how do they adopt and integrate these new technologies has created so many unknowns for employers that they're not able to succinctly say, as the same way they have in the past, this is your trajectory. This is where you're going. This is the prescribed way to get there. That is much more opaque than it's ever been. I agree, Alex. But here's the thing. Most leaders, most especially CEOs and division heads, are really adept at painting a vision for the future that they're not sure about. We do this with customers all the time. Oh, if you used our tool, if you had our product, if you had our service, look at what would be possible. We don't know that to be true. That's a fiction. It's a creation. Now, it may be based on some past case study examples or proof of concept that we've done in other scenarios or our hope and our expectation of what will happen, but it's not guaranteed. Your employees aren't looking for a guarantee. Your employees are looking for a lighthouse. They're looking for some vision in the fog, some future illumination of what it could be. And so one of the case, there are about 50 case studies. There are more than 50 case studies, actually, in the book. I get crazy when it comes to case studies. And they're from all seven continents. I think I'm actually the first business book that's ever been written to have a case study from all seven continents. But one of the case studies in the book that speaks directly to this is a company called Well-Oiled Operations. And what they do is they created a future org chart. Here's what happens. Every year, the CEO has a meeting with her team. And there's probably about 15 employees. So you don't have to be a giant global juggernaut to use this type of idea. She has about 15 team members. And what she does is she presents them with the three-year vision. Here's where I think the company will be in three years. Now, anybody listening, I imagine, this isn't rocket science. You've been at that annual meeting where the CEO says, here's where we're going in the future. But what the team at Well Oil Operations does differently is after sharing the vision of where the business is going to go, they present the future org chart. 
This is a wow. picture, an organizational chart that shows the staffing and the jobs that will be available three years from now, not today. And many of those jobs don't currently have a person in that role. So they have a little blank spot, which is the title. And what they do when they introduce this is they say to the team, if you see something on this future org chart that you think is a job you'd like to have, it may not even be in the ladder you're on. It may be in a completely different division or a completely different offering. Come talk to us. Because what we can do is start to work on training and positioning your job responsibilities now to make sure you're ready for that position when it's available three years from now. This totally changes the timeline and the type of conversations you're having with your people. Well, and frankly, Joey, that's, uh, and this isn't throwing shade at HR, but that's literally fundamentally counter to the way they've always processed this, which is 100%. don't tell somebody something that we can't deliver on. Don't promise something we can't deliver on. You know, So they don't like to have that kind of conversation, not because they're not great people, just because that's the way it's been done for so long. So that's a fantastic counterexample to creating inspiration and, and a desire for some new compelling future out there. Yeah, Nate, and here's the interesting thing. I have a lot of empathy for heads of human resources, heads of HR, right? Which I, I think, you know, we could have a whole separate conversation about whether we should even be calling humans resources. Um, they're yeah. humans <laughs> first, okay? They're not resources. And part of the dilemma is the language we use, right? When we use language that implies, I'm supposed to milk out of you all the value I can get and leave you laying yeah. on the ground when you're done or <laughs> strip mine this situation to basically just be a wasteland, we might have a fundamental problem in our words. However, I have empathy for the folks in that role. And as a recovering attorney, yes, I used to be a lawyer. First steps admitting you have a problem. There are 11 steps after that. As a recovering attorney, I understand the skepticism because we have been told by the general counsel or our lawyers, hey, don't, don't do things different for different employees. Everything has to be the same. Yes. Or don't overpromise what we're going to be able to deliver because they could rely on that and then we could end up in a lawsuit. Stop letting the lawyers decide how you show up as a human. What has happened is we have shifted to letting the legal fear drive our visioning. When fear drives your visioning, you're in trouble. That is fire. And it's not, again, not that lawyers are bad. It's just they, they have a different job. They have a different focus than that. They do. And I would posit that with most lawyers, if you get them in a conversation one-on-one -on -one, and you say, here's the challenge. I'm trying to bring even more personalization and more humanity to our business operation. Can you help me do that? They'd be like, no. Now you've, you've enrolled them. Like, here's the thing. If they, if they automatically say no, fire your lawyer. It's that simple. Fire your lawyer. I'm sorry. We have no problem firing an employee who isn't performing. But yet we look at our legal counsel, whether that's in-house or out-of-house, you know, out of office, and we say, well, the lawyer said that. No, if the lawyer's giving you an answer you don't like, it's okay to fire the lawyer. And I don't mean when they're saying, hey, you need to follow the law. We want to break the law. No, I mean, if you have a vision of what this could be, work with your legal team. And I promise you, it might take a couple extra rounds of conversation, but most likely you'll be able to get there. I like it. Staying with stats, 9% leave for more money. Here are four other really interesting stats on two sides of the conversation. So you have your employees already in-house. From your book, 52 to 64% of employees, current employees, are looking for their next job. And in 2021, you state the cost of turnover to employees in the U.S. alone exceeded $700 billion with a B, right? That's that side. Now let's flip over to this side, the cost of hiring. You state the cost of a new hire, and you go into great lengths to say, 
it's way more than you think because you're not factoring in all these soft costs. There's all these other factors and people involved in this thing. You've just left the cost out. But when you get all that together, it's three to four times the annual salary of the role that you're hiring for. And then the last stat is 88% of employees find their company's onboarding to be lackluster. So on one side, people are leaving. It's this huge, expensive thing. They're looking already for what's next. And then on this other side, it's not going well when you get them in, right? And, and, and this, it seems like what you've captured with these stats are, well, there's a lot of work to do <laughs> around this issue. <laughs> yeah, as, as, as my amazing wife, Barrett, tells me fairly regularly, the good news is I don't think we'll ever go hungry. Because there's, there's a lot of work to do in terms of improving businesses. Yeah, and here's, here's the thing. The reason I opened the book with this data is because I think many leaders have gotten disconnected from the true cost of employee experience going the wrong way. Mm-hmm. We have a little bit of emotional connection. Pretty much any leader, if you ask long enough, you know, who's the one who got away? Who's the employee that you had on your team that, oh, when they left, it crushed your soul, it broke your heart, you, you struggled mightily. Every leader who's been in business for any appreciable amount of time has a name that immediately comes up. But then when we ask them, what could you have done differently to keep them? They have no idea. Or they give some mm. knee-jerk reaction of, we could have paid them more. Or uh, I guess if I would have given them a better title, you know, do you do? And, and those statements are said from a place of pain, said from a place of hurt, a, a feeling of betrayal, a feeling of loss. Instead of deciding at the beginning, we are going to be committed to if we bring someone in, if they have cleared the gauntlet, if they've run the race of our interviewing process and we actually extend an offer and they decide to come, we are going to do everything in our power to make sure they stay by paying attention to what matters to them. Now, some people listening may be saying, well, Joey, that's fine with all these millennials. You know, they just went, no, folks, this cuts across all demographics. Look at the research. Mm -hmm. This isn't Mm -hmm. just the millennials leaving. This is the boomers leaving. This is everybody across the demographic spectrum saying, I am tired of going to work every day, feeling like I do my best and not feeling seen, heard, or valued. It's that simple, but it's also that complex. Joey, in a recent interview, you said, employees have realized that the employers have no clothes. Now, this relates to the famous fable, the emperor's new clothes. Can you tell us more about your conclusion here? What's the evidence? What do you mean by it? The reason I say the employees have realized that the emperor has no clothes or that the employer has had no clothes is the employers made this situation. What do I mean by that? Well, in the late 80s through the 90s and early 2000s, when large corporations decided to raid pension funds and take the money that had been previously set aside by their workers into pension funds, and then they decided to come in and invest that in other initiatives and do funny accounting to make it seem possible, and then fast forward 20 years and their investments didn't pan out the way they want, so now they can't pay their people their pensions, they created the problem. When the employer used to say, come to work for us, you can work here for 30 years. And when you're done, you'll retire with a gold watch. And then we did away with the gold watch because that was too expensive. And then we did away with the 30 years because we realized paying you in year 30 was more expensive than hiring somebody who was in year two to come in and take your year 30 job. 
the employer created the problem. When the employer started sending offer letters that had language written by lawyers, by the way, about being at-will employees and that we could fire you at any moment because this is an at-will jurisdiction, we eliminated any sense of stability and certainty that the employee previously had. The employers created the problem. And last but not least, when employers decided, hey, it is better for us to be technologically advanced than care about the beating heart of the humans who work here, and we are going to go ahead and automate this position out and fire all these people, not with any type of a severance package, not with any type of training, not with any type of notice, but rather you get called to a freaking Zoom meeting on a Friday and told, guess what? At the end of this call, you're no longer an employee. Employers created this problem. I'm not saying employees haven't done things to make it difficult to be an employer, but the employers are not guilt-free in this conversation. 100%. There's a new one that I'll offer that I, we just had a conversation this weekend with an HR executive. Her and I were having this conversation and she said, employers don't want to get involved with this societal stuff that's going on. And I said, well, isn't that interesting? Because employers have been wanting more, more, more of the employee time. I want more of your life. I'm going to put these devices in your pocket and in your backpack. I want more. I need more of you, more hours, more. And then what's interesting is the employees go, okay, well, here's more of me. I don't like what's going on when someone's getting killed in the streets. I don't like what's going on when there's racial violence and I feel like my community isn't being supported. I don't like what's going on when there's not gender equality and equity in this company. And I want to talk about those things. And the employer's like, "Ah, no, 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 no. That's Okay, now we've crossed the line. That's too much. And I think it's analogous to what you're talking about of when it works well for the employer, we want what we want, but we're not really thinking about the consequences of what's going to happen to this relationship. Nate, you are spot on in that humans are humans. Whether it's 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or 5 p.m. to 9 a.m., humans are still humans. And this whole fiction that, again, Sorry, employers, we created by saying, oh, this is work. It's not personal. This is business. It's not personal. Don't bring your personal life into the workplace. You're absolutely right. We expect them to answer the phone or answer the email after hours. We expect them to be tethered to their laptop while they're on vacation. We expect them to be ready at a moment's notice if we need them to stay late one night to work on a bit. But it's a big project, guys. You don't understand. These these don't come along that often. Actually, if we look at the numbers, they come along all the time. We're constantly asking people to go above and beyond their job description and their scope of employment, and we think nothing of it. Here's the fascinating research that I came across. If as an organization, you take a position that is actually in conflict with what one of your employees feels, that employee will score their employer higher on whether they like their employer or not than if you don't take a stand. Why? Because people just want to know you care. They Mm. don't even need you to care about the same things. They just want evidence that you're thinking about these things. Got to do a better job of just taking a stand and taking a position on those things. 100%. That's the human-centered approach. I want to take a quick step back to that fantastic list that you gave, which is really a list of corporate abuse, is what you're describing, of of a history of various forms of abuse, from taking pensions to firing people in a very unthoughtful or unhuman way. And when you think about it from a relational context, you know, people leave abusive relationships all the time, but there's a tipping point. There's something that happens inside you where you say, enough is enough. 
Now, we've been talking a lot about the empowered workforce. We did a whole episode on listing out all the reasons why we feel the, the great resignation occurred based on the research that we were looking at a couple of years ago. And it's fascinating stuff. I'm curious to understand from your vantage point, what was it that gave employees the courage to get out of the fear-based mindset of, oh, we have to stay here because it's the only thing we know to, hey, we're going to walk out in droves and step into the unknown because we're not going to settle for anything less than a more authentic experience in our work, in our careers, where we belong. Is that the existential fear of dying that came up around the pandemic? Is that the promise of gig work and becoming entrepreneurs? Is that younger generations that want work to feel more like family? What do you see as kind of the impetus on the other side for people saying enough is enough? Well, I think at the end of the day, uh, Alex, the answer is yes. It was all of those things. I mean, that's this is the problem. I think so many leaders are looking for the one scenario that caused this thing to tip over. It isn't one thing. It's death by a thousand cuts. I think there's one that really leveled the playing field globally and is one that we haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about as leaders or as a society. If we were to roll back the clock 50 years, okay, we were to roll back 50 years ago, as a general rule, the majority of humans on the planet worked for an employer that was headquartered within 30 miles of their home. They commuted to work. They did their job. They commuted home. Or they walked out their door and they went to the field they worked in and they worked in the field and then they came back to their house. Everything was in fairly close geographic proximity. Sure, maybe you knew a couple people that were, you know, oh, I'm a national sales rep, I'm on the road all the time, or I work for a large corporation. But even if you work for a large corporation that was headquartered somewhere else, chances are they had a regional office that was within 30 miles of your home. Then COVID comes along. And now... Not only is everybody sent home, but a lot of people start to say, well, if I don't have to live within 30 miles of the office, I want to move. The amount of migration that occurred during COVID of people moving, staying within the same country, but just moving to completely different regions is staggering when you look at the data. Part of that is because it, for the first time, not only became acceptable, but it was forced by most governments, okay? I would posit that employers wouldn't have shifted to remote work at the same rate and speed and globalization level that they did had it not been for governments and a pandemic saying, we can't do this anymore. And there were a lot of employers that were bristling against it. They're like, no, our people still need to come to work. And it literally took court action and enforcement of laws to say, no, if you do this, you're going to be fined. You're going to be shut down. You're going to get in trouble. Now, whether you agree with that or not, we could have a whole separate podcast and conversation. Mm. But it was reality. And that reality affected everybody on the planet at the same time. The number one threat to many of my clients' top employees being poached is from international companies that are now coming in and saying, we will hire you. You speak English natively. You're based in North America. You're on North America time zones. We will hire you and pay you more than you're getting paid right now. Plus, you'll get all the vacation days in the U.S., plus in our country of operation. And oh my goodness, if you're in France, you just got a month off. This is amazing, right? They come in and they are poaching top talent. And employers in the U.S. never really had to think about this before. They usually had to think about, well, who's the competition in your hometown that might offer you a job? And if we're the employer of choice in your hometown, we're good. Now, it's are you the employer of choice in all industries 
globally. And there are, frankly, the companies that are the employer of choice don't even answer that question yes, because they're hustling because they recognize the disruption they're dealing with. Yeah, that will only continue. This is only increasing. We are on the cutting edge of this. This is like being on the mosaic and Netscape internet browser back in the late 90s where you're like, I wonder what might happen. We had no vision of where it's going. This thing is only going to get crazier, which is why it's important to do resilience training with your team. It's why it's important to do creativity training with your team. It's why it's important to do empathy training with your team, to be working with your people to help them and you weather the change that is coming. Now, we've talked at length about the employer side of this equation. Let's flip it. In, in one part of your book, you talk a lot about the attitudes and perspectives, the beliefs and behaviors of employees have changed. Because of everything that's gone on, they're not where they used to be. And we're, we've been dancing around their side of this a little bit. But Joy, can we just go to the heart of what do employees want now? What are they looking for? Employees want to feel and I could probably end the sentence there. Employees <laughs> want to feel. That, that's really what we have. I, I, it is my personal belief when we come down to this, it is not enough to just get a paycheck. Mm. Employees want to feel like the work they're doing matters. Employees want to feel like they are contributing to something bigger than themselves. Employees want to feel like they are seen, heard, and valued at the place they spend the majority of their waking hours. Employees want to feel like they are working in a place where psychological safety isn't just a buzzword, it's a way of living. And I know there's a lot of people listening that might be tired of the psychological safety conversation. Well, guess what? When we have it, we get to stop talking about it. Seriously. Until we have it, we got to keep talking about it. So I'm sorry, I know you might be tired of it, Amen. but if you're tired of it, it probably means you don't have it. Yeah. So let's focus on it. I think the challenge is we got so enamored and so engrossed in the concept of scaling, more, 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 more people, more hours, more money, that we started to think that every scenario we were dealing with was the same. And we tried to cut off the edges and we tried to put people into boxes and we tried to get a certain type of behavior and experience. Because here's what I know to be true, guys. In every company I've ever worked with, there are employees who are absolutely incredible that the employer has no idea how incredible they are. Absolutely. Because that employee hasn't had either felt they had the space or the permission or the opportunity to speak their truth, to share their ideas, to lead. And you, you pointed to it earlier, Nate, this comes into sociological barriers. It comes into gender barriers. It comes into demographic barriers. There are all kinds of reasons why this is. This is hard work. It is hard work to create a workplace that thrives. Yeah. But if you're not up to that game, why are you in business? Go do something else. We have felt for a very long time that the companies that are going to be the most successful in the future of work over the next decade and beyond are the ones that are going to converge personal development and professional development. That now is the time for that because of how uncertain everything is feeling, living in this VUCA environment, volatile, uncertain, complex. And what's the A stand for? Ambiguous. Ambiguous. Thank you. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. Yes, it's ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. So we're living in that environment. And on top of that, you know, all the tools and the things that we're using are changing. And we're dealing with this amazing technological advancement that's, that's both incredibly promising and also very, very scary. And so, you know, going back to this question of personal identity that Nate was talking about and how that relates to your personal development and making the space for that. This is completely different 
from what we've experienced in work to date. Be different. 100%. And because I imagine the leaders listening could feel overwhelmed by that, let me offer a small shorthand that might allow you an entree into these type of conversations or considerations. I would posit that 10 years from now, in fact, probably faster than that, but let's say 10 for sure, probably closer to five. It is the case that the employer of choice in every industry is going to be the employer who cares as much about what happens in their employees' lives between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. as they do between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. What I mean by that is you have to recognize that the humans that are, quote unquote, your resources are first and foremost humans that have an entire life outside of the workplace. And as soon as you acknowledge that, as soon as you respect that, as soon as you get curious about what that life is, the more you're going to be able to increase your engagement, increase your productivity, and increase your retention, all of which, by the way, dramatically improves your bottom line. I think that is so fantastic. I want to ask you, how do world-class employers, as you've called them, or aspiring world-class employers do that in a way that is not invasive or creepy? I, it's, it's, it's a great question, Alex. I, it's a great question because I get this regularly. People are like, Joey, that sounds stalkerish. And I know you used to work for the CIA, yes. but the rest <laughs> of us might feel a little differently, okay? Yes. So, so here's how I like to think about this. There is a difference between being curious and being creepy. Curiosity stems from asking questions and listening when the person answers. So when you say to the team member, hey, you've got two weeks, you're going on vacation. Where are you going on vacation? What are you hoping to do? What are you hoping to see? What are you hoping to feel? And then when they come back, oh, Alex, how was the vacation? I remember you telling me you were going to go to the Grand Canyon. What did you think of it? Do, do, do. Oh, you know, when I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, I felt that I understood the definition of the word awe. I felt like I had never truly understood the definition of the word awe until I stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and looked Mm -hmm. at this majestic space. Now I feel like I understand awe. What was your experience of the canyon? Mm -hmm. Now we're having a conversation. It doesn't feel creepy. Asking people what they're doing, getting curious about their hobbies, their interests, is a great way to spark that conversation. And I'll also throw out this pro tip. If you are an employer, it's up to you whether you want to be friends with your employees on social media, but you sure as heck better be looking at their social media accounts regularly. Why? Because they are broadcasting what matters to them. They're talking about what they do, who their family members are, their pet's name, where they went on vacation, the movie they just saw, were they Barbie or Oppenheimer, right? You're getting all this insight for free all the time. And it's also permission because these folks have publicly shared these aspects of their life. Now you have a little bit of an entree into a personal conversation. I love that. And, And what you're really saying in a lot of ways is take that same approach you would to your customer research and bring it to your employees. 100%. The most important relationships we have in business are not with our prospects, although we put a lot of time and effort towards our prospecting. They are not with our clients, although we put a lot of time and effort towards our relationships with our clients. It's with the people who are with us all day, every day. The people who are helping to drive our organization, our impact, our enterprise forward. That's where we need to invest our time and effort first. Then spread it out to our existing customers, our prospective customers, our vendors, and folks we do business with. It's got to start with the employees and our team first. Yo, you, you have a great quote, a great quote from your book that's just very 
to the point, it's crisp. Friends, we can do better. <laughs> like, hey, we can do better. But here's some grace, a heap of grace for leaders, for human resources, for um, middle management, for executive management. This is the grace. There isn't a lot of infrastructure. There isn't a lot of training and there isn't a lot of support for this new way yet. So the grace is, it's okay to be in the messy middle. It's okay to be trying to find your way and um, to be leveling up. So to Joey's point, friends, we can do better. It's time to do better. Everybody on both sides wants to do better. This has been absolutely fantastic. I want to continue with this thread of what makes a world-class employer because I think there's some great insights both for leaders and for employees. Now, let's say that I am looking for a new job and uh, I'm trying to figure out what are the red flags that might tell me that the employer that I'm evaluating is not a world-class employer, is not employee-centric. And similarly, what would be some of the green lights that would tell me concretely this is a world-class employer and they're really going to care about me and my trajectory at this company. Well, Alex, for what it's worth, I feel like you're couching this question from the place of what should the employee be thinking about, which is great. And I'll answer it in that way. But while I do, if you're an employer, what I'd like you to be listening for is the low-hanging fruit of things that you can go check your own hiring process and see how you're doing on these criteria. Because if they are the things that I think are going to stand out to an employee as, ugh, not the kind of place I want to be, you want to make sure you're not doing these. So number one, is your process for going from being a prospective employee to being an employee who's sitting looking at a job offer smooth and clear? You should not post a job listing without saying what your process is going to be. And if you are applying for a job and you see a job listing that doesn't have any details about, well, are there going to be interviews and what are we going to do? They have nothing on their website saying like, here is the path from how someone goes from first hearing about us to being an employee that might be a warning flag that this isn't a world-class employer. In fact, it's going to surely show you that it's not a world-class employer. Now, most people, as they're hearing this, are going, Joey, I don't think I've ever seen a job description or a job listing which detailed, like, here's what our process is going to be and how long it's going to take and what's going to happen. If you haven't yet, it means one of two things. You will soon or you haven't been applying to world-class employers because world-class employers do that. Number two, world-class employers keep you in the loop as you go through the process. You never have yourself wondering, when are they going to make a decision? What's the next step? This happens with our customers too. We talk about holding the hand of a customer and letting them know kind of what our onboarding process is and what comes next and when they can expect to receive our package they ordered from an e-com site, anything like that. That should be happening from the employer as well. So when you submit your resume, you should get a confirmation that they've received it. That confirmation should also say, we're going to be reviewing it in the next two weeks, and then we will be back to you with a decision on whether we invite you in for an interview or not, something like that. Number three, when you actually get to the interview, it should be clear to you that they are not asking questions from a Google search of 10 questions to ask during a new employee interview, <laughs> right? Like if you get asked, so what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Where oh do you my. see yourself in 10 years? Tell me about this thing on your resume. Um, am I correct that you worked here on the dates that it says on your resume? If they're asking those type of boring layup, easy questions that, by the way, we're not even paying attention to what we would use with your answers, they are not a world-class employer. Next, when you show up for the first day on the job, if no one's there to meet you, if they don't know that it's your first day, 
If they don't have your computer, if they don't have stuff set up for you, they are not a world-class employer. In fact, let's look at the statistics on this. 4%, 4% of new hired employees show up for their first day on the job. They spend the day at the job. They go home that night and they never come back again. 4% wow. globally of employees work one day and never again. It's not That's because wild. they're bad. It's not because they're lazy. It's because you didn't make the first day special enough to make them trust that day two was going to be any better. Wow. We can do better. We can do better. Let's talk about the future for a second. These macro disruptions are just getting started. We're going to see more and it's going to happen faster. We've entered the age of generative AI. It is going to impact the workforce in a huge way. Hybrid work is here to stay, right? We have talent shortage is going to continue to be an issue. Digital transformation will continue. What do you think the path forward is when it's so clear that we're going to be in the sea of disruption for a long time? <laughs> yeah. I am not an AI expert by any means, nor am I a technologist per se. But I try to have friends that are. I try to associate with people who are. I try to pay attention to people who are on the cutting edge, especially around technology and the environment, because I think the two things that are going to disrupt the workforce the most are tech and the planet we live on. Mm -hmm. What I know from the folks that I talk to that are in the AI space, the question I always ask whenever I get a chance with an AI expert is, what is the thing we're not going to be able to teach AI to do? And there was a period where they used to say creativity. Okay, but one needs to only look at mid-journey or any of the amazing stable generative diffusion, art happening, stable stuff. diffusion, yeah. all of these things. So by the way, sorry, creativity is gone. <laughs> the only other thing, the only other thing, now they used to say creativity, now they know that. The thing they consistently say to me, at least the ones I talk to is empathy. We're not sure how we're going to teach a computer to be empathetic. And what's fascinating about that is I've been pulling on that thread for a while now because I'm not sure that we're teaching humans to be empathetic. So how the heck, if we're not able to teach humans to be empathetic, are we going to teach a computer to be empathetic? I think if we had more empathy as humans, the planet would be better, full stop. We would like to take you into a speed round. A speed round is you just answer like you do always, fast, quick, from your gut, go with whatever is on the tip of your tongue, and Alex is going to kick us off. Okay, first question. You used to be a lawyer. You've reinvented yourself many times. This skill set is vital to the future of work. How do you do it so seamlessly? Oh, it, this is one of those things where I'm thrilled that you feel it looks seamless from the outside, <laughs> okay? Um, I, I think, let's acknowledge, number one, uh, that I, you know, I come from a certain place of privilege with being able to reinvent myself. And when a lot of these reinventions have occurred, I've had uh, less responsibilities to my family or to others that have allowed me that freedom and flexibility. I guess what I would say is, don't be afraid to invest time into the thing that piques your interest. It's something I've done my entire career and it has led to entire new careers. If you're interested in learning more about something, go learn more about it. Uh, I don't know that this is true, but I certainly like to think it. Uh, if you read 10 books on a topic, you put yourself into the one top 1% of humans on the planet in terms of knowledge on that topic. 10 books. You can read 10 books in a year, no problem. So imagine picking a topic and being in the top 1% of humans within a year just from reading books. Super practical. Going completely to the other end of this ridiculousness, buzzy employment terms. 
great resignation, quiet quitting, loud quitting, quiet firing, right? The great regret. What is with all these terms? And is it just marketing buzz or is there anything behind that? It's, it's, it's marketing in an era that has decided that it is better to sell fear than anything else. And so when we say great resignation, all employers pay attention. Oh my gosh, I don't want to feel that. When we say quiet quitting, we're like, oh, I don't want my people quiet quitting. And then we flip to loud quitting and we're like, oh, but I don't want them loud quitting either. I just don't even want them quitting. Wait, what's going on? <laughs> Kids these days, okay? Go beyond, read your news, don't watch your news. Okay, what I mean by that is don't watch it on TV. It is condensed down into sound bites. I don't care what channel you're watching, read and read deep. Don't read the 200-word article. This is like the studies on why people leave. Don't look at the study that surveyed 300 people. Look at the study that surveyed over 240,000. Read the article that is 25 pages long. That's where the actual answers are. Question three, in a sentence or two, what will separate the winners from the losers in the future of work? I think we need to stop believing that there are winners and losers and start believing that there are those who are employers of choice, who are empathetic, who will allow you to be your full self at work and try to be one of those and try to work for one of those. We all have young kids. Alex and I have young kids. And you're, you have young kids. Your parents have a house full of grandkids. <laughs> they right? do. You guys have a big, beautiful family. My question to you is, what is your message? these kids. And maybe it's what is going to be your message when they grow up into a workforce that looks markedly different from what we know. What I'm trying to, and my wife and I both are trying to teach our boys, is that everything in life is a choice. And every choice has consequences. Some of those are intended consequences. Some of those are unintended consequences. And to recognize that at every moment of your life, you are in a state of choice, even if you don't think you're in a state of choice. So do your best to be a critical thinker, to be an empathetic human, to recognize that your choices have consequences, and then do your best to make the best choice you can at that moment, knowing that a moment later, you can potentially choose a different choice. And that's not only okay, but it will be happening more and more in the future. Joey, what inspires you and gives you hope? It, it inspires me that people are having these conversations. It inspires me that people are willing to try. It inspires me that people are increasingly being comfortable in the messy middle. It inspires me that people are increasingly trying to be empathetic. It inspires me that we are, despite the fact that especially here in the United States, the last few years have been an absolute train wreck does feel like we're getting back to basics. And what I mean by that is getting back to caring about the person we live next to, the person who serves us the hamburger in the restaurant, the person who delivers our mail. If we just go out into the world with a little bit of grace and a little bit of love and a little bit of empathy, that is literally all it will take to change our planet. Joey, thank you so much for your commitment to creating unique, special, and unforgettable experiences for your incredible research, for case studies across seven continents, and your passion for creating better employment experiences across the globe. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Alex and Nate. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And if I can make a little plug, friends, 
I'm a former podcast host. If you like this show as much as I like this show, and I love this show, don't just subscribe, okay? Subscribing helps. Go write a review. Stop right now and go write a review. Alex and Nate aren't asking you to write a review. I'm asking you to write a review because that is the only signal in the world of podcasting that anyone on the other side is listening. And if you found value in this conversation or any of the other amazing conversations that uh, Alex and Nate have had with their guests, take 30 seconds, click over to iTunes, write a review. I know the guys will appreciate it and I'll appreciate it too because these conversations need to keep happening. And Nate and Alex are making sure that these conversations are happening. So if you resonate with that, show them the love by writing a review. I promise you, it'll go a long way to keeping things like this going. The best place is on my website, joeycoleman.com, J-O-E-Y, like a baby kangaroo or a five-year-old you know. Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation, joeycoleman.com. The book is called Never Lose an Employee Again. You can find it wherever you love books. The previous book was called Never Lose a Customer Again. All my books are available in hardcover, ebook and audio version. And if you've enjoyed the sound of my voice, I actually narrate the audiobooks. So check them out. Uh, hopefully it can help you increase and enhance the experiences you deliver for the humans you interact with. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future. Oh,